and welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? Hi, April. Hi, Rachel. I'm Rachel. I'm April. (laughs) (laughs) And what's shitting you this week? I'm so in the mindset of our episode that we're doing. I'm super excited about this one. It is great. So uh, I guess that's what's shitting me. Great. I mean, that's not shitting me in a bad way. It's shitting me in a good way. This is a really fun episode, and we have a special treat. We have two special treats. One, a great interview with Dr. Rachel Harris, and second, an in-studio guest who will join us after we listen to the interview. Yeah, and we're going back to another episode about psychedelics. We love the subject so much, we decided to uh, delve into it a little bit more. I've got to say, really excited. I mean, this is one of my favorite topics, and I know it's not the entire theme of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? But it's certainly something that has blown my mind. This time around, though, we were contacted by a woman who's done studying with ayahuasca, who is Dr. Rachel Harris. And I've got to say, April, she was a delight, an absolute delight to speak with. Well, I can't wait to hear the interview. All right, let's have her introduce herself and we'll just get going. Hi, Rachel. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a psychologist, and I've spent my career um, 10 years in research, a number of years doing consulting, and most of it has been in a private psychotherapy office. I specialized in people who were interested in what's now called psychospiritual development and growth. And so for me, as a therapist, that meant an opportunity to work on their family of origin stories and relationships and take a look at how their lives are unfolding and also explore um, their spiritual experiences as well. And so I tended to attract people who were open to that sort of exploration. So I sort of have an expertise, or certainly a lot of experience, in working with the exact same people who seek ayahuasca ceremonies. In the West, they're mostly seeking these ceremonies either in the States where it's an underground system or in South America, but they're looking for some kind of psychological and spiritual healing and opening. Ayahuasca is a a tea that's made from two plants that are found in the Amazon jungle. And when anthropologists came across this, uh, this brew, they asked the indigenous peoples, how did you know to combine these two plants? Because when the two plants are combined... Um, they have a chemical interaction that allows the psychedelic uh, dimethyltryptamine, DMT, to be absorbed in the human system. And the indigenous people basically said, the plants told us. So that opens up a whole other cosmological world. The plants told us to combine these two. So we, we don't really know how to think about that even in a Western context, that the the plant teachers are um, communicating with people and helping them learn uh, how to use the plants themselves. Ayahuasca is a Schedule One drug at this time. Is there yes. a reason? Ayahuasca is a Schedule One drug, which means it's uh, dangerous with no medical purpose. And marijuana is, of course, classified in the exact same way. So we know that these classifications are now old and inaccurate. They're not based on science and data. There have been studies with ayahuasca. It is probably the least studied psychedelic. It's a very strong psychedelic. So there are real dangers, and I appreciate your asking about that because I I can tend to be enthusiastic about the benefits because the healing benefits are quite remarkable. But there are real dangers with this medicine. So some people should not venture into these territories. And those are the people who have a history of psychosis or schizophrenia, manic psychosis, bipolar. It's just too risky. If they go off the deep end as a result of a uh, ceremony, they can lose you know, major time in their lives where they have, need help recovering. So that's a real danger. But there are not a lot of those reports. Perhaps what there are even more reports are people going to South America and not having vetted, really carefully selected the retreat center they can fall into the hands of an unethical shaman or a center that's just taking advantage of Westerners and 
Now I've heard all kinds of stories. I mean, one story was the shaman put shaving lotion, probably for the alcohol content, in the brew. So I've heard all kinds of stories of inappropriate things being added to the brew. So you really need to be careful where you go, who you put yourself in their hands. You want to be safe above all. And there have to be enough helpers in the ceremony to help people get to the bathroom It's a very intense experience, and people will vomit and have diarrhea and often need help going to the bathroom. So this is not medicine that's going to be used at uh, rock festivals or for recreational purposes. It's too challenging and intense and demanding. Above all, we want people to be safe. And the current research at Hopkins and NYU and University of Southern California, they're, they're researching psilocybin and LSD, And they're setting it up in a very, very safe context within a medical center, you know, in hospital, but in a comfortable living room kind of setting. They're not having any dangerous episodes because they're screening and they're taking good care of people and they're being very safe in the whole setting. And someday (laughs) I would like to see that same opportunity for ayahuasca. And I, I don't know how that will happen. And, I mean, I I heard you use the phrase certify shaman. We don't know how to evaluate shaman. This is, (laughs) I I really don't know how this is going to work. But um, I do know that we have to be very careful. And because it's still an underground uh, activity in North America, I think any of us who are involved have to take extra care of each other and not ever leave anyone alone and make sure there are enough helpers for everyone and and just be aware of other people. So what inspired you to research ayahuasca? Well, you know, the title of the book is Listening to Ayahuasca, and literally I heard a voice tell me, do the research. So I really cannot explain this. Um, It was after maybe just uh, two years, and so that meant one or two ceremonies a year. So I was still very much a beginner, but of course... I had all kinds of um, therapy questions about how does this medicine work? How is it so specifically therapeutic? I mean, I just I had had experience with psychedelics in the late 60s, but this was a whole different ball game. It was so specifically therapeutic, and I would ask the shaman. I, you know, there were translators. I would have my questions translated. How does this medicine work? How does ayahuasca know? what to shine a light on, you know, the shaman really were not interested in these questions, had no context for them. And the gap was just too large to shift from Western psychotherapy questions to an indigenous cosmology. This is not how they think at all. So I, I just did what uh, the voice told me to do. I thought the, <laughs> I, I understood it as Grandmother Ayahuasca. I didn't question it a lot. I mean, I know this sounds a little crazy, but I just thought, what a good idea. I'm the perfect person to do this. I have a research background, a clinical background. I can do underground research. I'm not connected to a university. I called uh, one of my old research mentors who at that time was, let me think, he was 85 years old. And um, I talked to him about the study, and he was uh, he was very supportive. And then, actually, I went into a ceremony, and this this is the story in the book. In the ceremony, I hear the voice, Grandmother Ayahuasca says, involve Lee in the research. Lee was my mentor's name. And I said, I already, sp-, you know, I felt like I was a 16-year-old sort of being told, you know, go to bed early. I already called Lee. Uh, he's, you know, he's he's supportive. And Ayahuasca just very patiently says, no, involve him in the research. So I call Lee back. Lee, Lee, meanwhile, won a lifetime contribution award from the American Psychological Association during the time we were doing this research. He's a very prestigious researcher. I got involved in this. And um, I called him and said, well, Grandmother Ayahuasca told me I should ask you to be involved in the research. And there's a pause on the other end of the phone. And he says, okay. And, you know, we both felt by the end of the project, writing up the article for publication, I said to Lee, you know, there should be a third author mentioned here. And he understood what I meant exactly. I received so much guidance from Grandmother Ayahuasca. 
however we understand that process, that it really made a difference in how we interpreted the data analysis. It was a very sophisticated input I received. So he knew what I meant, but of course we couldn't say that in a, in a professional research journal. But that was really how we both felt. And so the research focus, we had 81 people in it. These were people who had been in an ayahuasca ceremony in North America at least once. There were no controls. You know, they could have been in a ceremony three years ago or last week. There were no controls. And the questions were all geared to how did you change? How did it change your life? What's different? You know, there are essay questions. It went on for 16 pages. I mean, it took hours to fill out this questionnaire. And people were happy to do it because it helped them to think about their experience and what it meant to them and how they have changed as a result. I'm no longer collecting data. The study is done, but I included the research protocol, the questionnaire in the back of the book, because so many people said it was helpful to help them integrate the experience. It really covered the same kind of territory we cover in therapy, but it can't take the place. I mean, I am a therapist. I have to say a questionnaire can't take the place of a therapist. You know, after a ceremony, the days and weeks immediately after, these are golden days for people to, you know, the colloquial terms are recalibrate, reset. But even the researchers from the 50s and 60s who were working with LSD, they talked about a complete reorganization of personality. And that is the opportunity after any of the major psychedelics. You get a chance to think things through in a different way and and reset yourself in a different direction if you choose. And and that's part of what makes these medicines so remarkable therapeutically. In your experience, is there a type of person that you find is looking for ayahuasca? Is there an underlying quality in a person that, that searches grandmother ayahuasca out on their own? That's a t- You're asking the question, who are these people attending uh, ceremonies and maybe even traveling to South America? And I, and I, I mentioned before, they tend to be, and certainly in my study and in some other studies I've looked at, these people tend to be very well educated. Most of them had graduate degrees, for instance. And they were people who were searching. They were sort of kindred spirits, uh, wanting to grow uh, emotionally and spiritually. So they tended to have had meditation experience, done yoga or tai chi, some kind of physical discipline. Many of them had a spiritual discipline that they did four or five times a week. So these were people who were clearly on a path, and that's really the best description. Now, I think as ayahuasca becomes better known, there will be more people who are suffering and seeking it out for healing, people who um, are suffering with depression and are treatment-resistant. In other words, the antidepressants don't help them. And so they'll be seeking alternative approaches. And I think people are, with certain kinds of medical problems, are seeking ayahuasca to see if it can help them. So there will be that kind of, uh, from the ground up, exploration of, you know, will this medicine help this condition? So, for instance, in, in one of the research listservs, Somebody was asking, has, you know, has anyone had experience with anorexia? Anorexia is one of the most difficult psychiatric diagnoses to treat, along with having a very high death rate. And so, but we don't really know, is, will ayahuasca help or not? I mean, certainly in my study, people reported changing their health habits and eating very simply more fruits and vegetables. But this is something psychologists can't get them to do. You know, we we talk to people about a healthier lifestyle. These are the most difficult habits to change. But people spontaneously change their health habits, very similar to how they, um, I heard from a number of people who said, you know, I woke up the next morning and I knew I would never touch alcohol again. And some of these people I knew, and I knew they were on their way to being in terms of alcoholism, they were on their way to getting in trouble with alcohol. So some of these spontaneous changes, we don't really understand how they happen. So there will be a lot of experimentation. Much research needs to be done, but it's going to take decades. 
you touched on actually one of my next questions was about treatment-resisted depression, but the grandmother ayahuasca could theoretically be, because it's an entheogen, one of the sacred plant medicines that can help us deal with things that allopathic Western medicine have not been able to to do. It seems like ayahuasca has this wonderful ability to do the thing where you can be more gentle with yourself without taking on the, the pain that can cause those treatment-resistant things. Well, you know, you're raising some issues that are um, really important and central therapeutic issues. One is that uh, capacity to be more compassionate to oneself. And this is a standard therapeutic issue because people are so critical of themselves pretty much constantly. You know, we kind of have running tapes inside that are critical and demanding and harsh. And a new... Um, compassion arises from within, and the, the Buddhists talk about it. Let me—I think I think the phrase is radical uh, self-acceptance or something like that. But it's—it's it's not just increased self-esteem. It's not I feel better about myself. It's I have real compassion for myself, and and it comes from a deeper place of understanding. So that's one really central core therapeutic issue. The other one is to develop a certain distance from my emotions, let's say. So if I'm depressed or anxious, uh, I have enough distance that I understand where this is coming from. I know it won't last forever. I have some skills. I know how to work with it. So there is a sense of um, I'm not at the mercy of this depression or anxiety, and so people tend to do better. So there there are people who reported what I call a miracle cure. My depression is gone. It's lifted. I've never felt like this before. I mean, there were reports like that. But there were other reports that said something more like, I do tend to get depressed still, but I don't feel as desperate about it. My attitude toward it is better. I know it will pass. So there's a shift in that kind of, therapeutic perspective and distance that allows people to handle these difficult moods better. I mean, if all I had to do as a therapist would be to say, well, have more compassion for yourself, you know, there'd be no need for this whole profession. (laughs) You know, we could just print it out on signs. But there has to be a working through where we understand the different parts of ourselves, the, the children within us, the more vulnerable parts of ourselves, so that the compassion bubbles up spontaneously. And that's a process, usually, in therapy. But with uh, some of these psychedelic medicines, it happens as part of the experience. You use the term entheogen, and I, I can talk about mystical experience, because that's a, a slightly different perspective. And the research at uh, Johns Hopkins on psilocybin is identifying a complete mystical experience as sort of the therapeutic variable. That's what makes a difference. And and it does, and they will continue to explore that and gather more data. But ayahuasca, certainly people have complete mystical experiences with ayahuasca, but they have very, I, don't, I, I want to say down and dirty psychological experiences. And, I, and I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. I, should, I mean more nitty-gritty psychological experiences, clearly not a spiritual experience. For instance, I can just say I saw a traumatic memory of my own from when I was about three years old when my mother um, put me outside the house and said, go out and play. You know, she was obviously fed up with being a mother for that moment or however long it lasted. But I relived this in an ayahuasca ceremony, being put out. And the abandonment of that and the fear, then I saw it again in an ayahuasca ceremony as if I were watching it on a TV show, on a screen. And that gave me that therapeutic distance. And I could see that my mother was stressed out as a mother and have some compassion for her. I mean, I've also been there. And I could have compassion for this little child who's kind of lost being put outside the house. So this is a traumatic incident that I relived and also saw replayed. So by the time I finished with both of those experiences during a ceremony, I felt um, not untraumatized, 
but more at peace with having that in my history, for instance. One of the therapeutic questions I would ask the next morning is, how did this medicine know to come up with this scenario? This is so specific, and that's part of the mystery of the process. I don't really have an answer for that. I'd like to use one of your questions that you would ask the people in your study. How is your life different since your experience with ayahuasca? One of the biggest differences for me is I am more compassionate with myself, appreciating some of the damage from my childhood family experiences. And it wasn't that this was new information. As a therapist, I'd been through tons of therapy. You know how that is. So it wasn't that I got new information, but I held the history differently in my body and in my heart. And so the feeling of appreciation and compassion for myself and some humility also about what the damage really has meant in my life. And so I would say that's the biggest shift. I mean, I keep waiting for my craving for potato chips to disappear. That would be great. But I'm not one of those people who had that kind of miraculous cure. So for me, it's the, it's the psychological work that's made the biggest difference in my life. And, and then I think philosophically, certainly my relationship with death is different. And I think that's across the board with all the psychedelics. With the, the entheogenic experience, the, the spiritual experiences, the fear of death is reduced and, uh, that's a very common thing that people say, even if the psychedelic experience was 40 years ago. People say that because, um, you know, the 60s generation, we're all old now and we're, we have friends who are dying. And I've heard this before. And I think for myself, there's a greater openness and receptivity to spirits and energies from the other side. Ayahuasca sort of opens a portal to people who have passed on and there's more communication and connection there somehow. So, and that's part of the reduced fear of dying. You know, in describing grandmother ayahuasca, I want to add that yes, she is kind and loving and gentle and unconditionally accepting. And she's also a very tough grandmother and she'll let you know you know, when you need to shape up. And that's really quite um, interesting in itself. So there was a, a young man who reported really hearing her speak to him. He was mid-20s. And so I'm interviewing him, and I was thrilled to hear someone else heard a real voice. And, and so I said, well, what did she say to you? And he looked at me, and he said, well, she told me to get a haircut and clean up my room. <laughs> And so, you know, this is the other side of this grandmother. She can be very practical and really, you know, let you know uh, what the what the next step is for you. <laughs> you know, this guy was not thrilled with this message. You know, he wanted a big spiritual experience. But that's uh, that's what she set on his path for him to achieve. Another interviewer was interviewing me, and in that process he shared his very early experience with ayahuasca where he was very sick and feeling waves of vomiting come up and just was pretty miserable. And ayahuasca was telling him how he needed to communicate more of his emotional feelings and his uh, relationships with women. And he was very resistant and was sort of saying, I do that, you know, <laughs> and he was just sort of fighting it. And he said, whenever he was resistant, a huge wave of nausea would come up and overpower him. And finally he said, okay, okay, you're right, I get it. And then the nausea calmed down. So you can see the development of a relationship there where he's being yes. held accountable in a very physical way. So the stories are just amazing. And then they're therapeutic because I asked him, well, did you change your behavior? He said, absolutely. I can totally relate to that guy. The one who had nausea after he was fighting Grandmother Ayahuasca's recommendations? Yeah, I feel like I've had moments when I've been on ecstasy or when I've done mushrooms where 
I'm I feel like I'm supposed to speak up and say something and I get sick. Really? Yeah. And I've had other moments not on drugs where that happens, where I didn't speak up and I get sick afterward. So you're not using your throat chakra and I the rest not, of your body is like... This podcast is very good for that, though. I I'm know, I'm finally right? talking about shit. <laughs> <laughs> I told someone that uh, I didn't know how to express myself and they were surprised. And I was like, oh, I think it's the podcast. I'm learning how to have my voice. This has been great. Yeah, this is probably the best <laughs> therapy for anyone who just, who's been told they need to use their voice. Although ayahuasca sounds like a pretty damn good therapy for it. Yeah, when can we go take that? Well, I'm sure we can do some research and find a connection for a good shaman. In fact, maybe our guest today will have some advice for us. Our guest today is Chelsea Lockwood. Chelsea is a comedy writer and a producer living here in Los Angeles. So Chelsea, we'd love to hear about your ayahuasca experiences. When was the first time you took it? Well, I actually, I mean, I found out about it um, years ago, but I had taken antidepressants for a long time, like 10 years. And so it was just kind of out of the question. You you can't mix those two, you blow up your brain. So um, I had some friends though, about two years ago, tell me about a place not too far away from here that they went and they had an amazing experience. And it just sat in my mind for years. And I was like, I want to get off antidepressants and I want to do this. Like it was like when they say it's a calling, it was a calling for me. It was actually a year ago this month that was the first time that I ever did it. And so you did this specifically for your depression. Yeah. Yeah. I waited. uh, The shaman wanted me to wait six weeks after I went off antidepressants before I could do it. And I timed it out exactly to the day. It was (laughs) agonizing. (laughs) And then I went and I, I did it. Yeah. So... I don't want to just say, how has your life changed? Because I'm guessing it's changed in multiple different ways. Yeah, I would say um, I've done it nine times. And I would say each time I've done it, it changes my life (laughs) in a different kind of way. And for the better. I I feel like I've... It's like been several lifetimes since I the first time I, I took it, and I'm, I feel like a completely different person. So can you t- remember the first time what the experience was? or Is that deep in your cellular memory now? Or My first time is not remarkable. I actually did not have a psychedelic experience the first time. And I believe now that's because I went there with a written list of everything I wanted to be told. <laughs> and he was like, here's all my questions. This is what I want you to show me, grandmother. Like, it was... <laughs> everything like that and I learned very quickly she doesn't take orders she gives you the opposite of that so she didn't give me any experience which was very frustrating could I interrupt for just a second the experience of grandmother ayahuasca I kind of thought maybe that was the author Rachel's own interpretation of what happened but is that part of the ceremony it's very much a person and the way that she treats you initially is very different than how she treats you after you've been back a few times it's like a person it's yeah. So when you listen to Rachel's interview, what did anything strike you as like that's something I recognize, that's something that I have been through? I mean the overarching kind of themes of it. Definitely like the sickness comes when you are ready to release something. And when you do throw up, it is ecstasy. You're releasing the things in your mind. It it comes like sometimes you will be just in your own personal hell, just like, I just, I just hate everything. I just want to get out of here. Why did I come here? Why did I do this? And then you throw up and it's all, it's all washed clean, the slate. And you just like, oh God, I'm so glad to be out of that now. I've moved on. Whoa. I mean, that's a literal physical Oh yeah, repulsion of everything that's toxic that's been holding you right there. All of my experiences with throwing up is that I want nothing more than to throw up because I want to let go of everything that's holding me back. And I can, and when I do throw up, it's like I can see it. I can feel exactly what I'm letting go of. <laughs> that was uh, all of us being speechless. <laughs> so the ceremony. Are you in there with just the shaman or is it you and other people? It's always other people. <laughs> and it's I've been in, a, it's like a dome type structure in the desert. I've been with groups as small as 12 other people and groups as large as 45 other people. 45 sounds ridiculous and we were very crammed in there. There was no personal space. 
but you you form a connection with each and every one of them. Like my Facebook friends, like I'm Facebook friends with like almost everyone I've done a ceremony with because even though you're not directly interacting with them, there's something that happens. There's a connection that forms. I'm good friends with people I've done ayahuasca with now. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So how many hours are you in there? Well, there's a whole thing that we go through before we even take the medicines. You're like kind of an essential oil and a blessing over you. There's a prayer. You pass the jar around with ayahuasca in it. And we say what medicine we are personally putting in there, like for ourselves and for others. And then that kind of takes a while, depending on how many people are there. Then we have to go up to the shaman one by one and we all get our glass. And she asks you how much you want to take. How deep do you want to go? Then we wait till everybody's back at their seat and we drink it. So that first part maybe takes an hour. Once you've actually taken it, it takes about 30 minutes to an hour to kick in. And then it can be three hours and it could be six hours. There's usually a second dose somewhere along the night for people. Like some people it kind of wears off like after a few hours and you want to go deeper or, you know, they ring a bell and they say, if you don't hear the bell, you don't need to come up (laughs) for a second sip. But if you do hear, if you're like, oh, aware enough to hear it, then you should. And are you sitting in the same place the whole time or do you get up and move around? You have like a little nesting area. Like there's already some pillows and blankets and stuff that are available there, but you can bring anything else that you want. Okay. And is it expensive? In California, um, because it's like a religious thing, We ha- there's like a membership to join that's $50 and you have a card with your face and name on it that says, I can do this. It's my religion. And then... Uh, it's 250 for each ceremony. Okay, so you actually do it through, for lack of a better word, a church, an ayahuasca religion. I know there's some people that can legally do it, and you're doing it through that way. Right. Okay. And I would say there's no mention of God. There's no feeling of it being like... Yeah, I meant more for like our that. government. It is all <laughs> government. <laughs> like, just <laughs> screw them. <laughs> yeah. The practicality is... It's, it's very structured, except for it's not. It's... Right. Okay. So <laughs> even though your first experience wasn't remarkable or you didn't have any psychedelic experience, it's clearly made enough of an impression on you that you wanted to go back. What was it that made enough impression on you? Well, it was kind of... like I ended up talking to the shaman about it, and I was like, what the fuck happened here? Like, what's wrong with me? And she said, there's nothing wrong with you. Sometimes it just takes a little bit more to break through with some people. And at that point, it was really, my options were, I'm either going to go back on antidepressants or I'm gonna try this again. It was a difficult choice, but I decided one more time and it it hit me really quickly <laughs> the second time. I remember distinctly as it was hitting me, I felt it scanning my body. It Not in a spiritual way, but in a way like I was in a, alien like computer type scan and like I could tell it was looking where's the problem it was like looking for the problem and when it got to my head my brain that it was like bingo and um, (laughs) I felt it this was the very first thing that happened Um, it rewired my brain completely and I saw it and I felt it and it was like my brain lit up like a Christmas tree and just lights just it was on fire. My brain was like on fire. And it wasn't an unpleasant feeling, but I could see it happening. And I could also see the ayahuasca was coming through with like a samurai sword. Like, so you know, neural pathways. Like, I could see it using a samurai sword to break through my neural pathways. And it was just like, this doesn't need to be there. This can go. This can go. And it was just like, it teared everything up until it was just like blank. And from there, um, I went on t- to experience what felt like a thousand years of dying. And it felt like when I came back to work, like the next week, I felt like I had been gone for a thousand years. It was so endless. And I died every single way that a person could die. And then I got to a point where I stopped fighting it, where I was just like, I know, like, even when I die, I'm still here. Even when I die, I'm still here. I'm never ending. Like, it's never going to end. It's a seamless loop. So why do I fight? the death anymore and when I finally got to that point it was like okay we can move on and that was my first thing but after that my third and fourth ceremonies were the most traumatic of my life they were that's when we got into the shit (laughs) so your first 
your first ceremony, no psychedelic. Your second ceremony, it's looking at your brain. Grandmother Ayahuasca is looking at your brain and going, everything's been wired incorrectly. So cut through it. And then your third and fourth, is this when, when she comes in or when the medicine comes in and says... Now, why was it wired incorrectly? I would say she was brutal. She mm-hmm. was incredibly brutal, but that is also what I asked for. I, I was like, don't be gentle. I want this. I want to be free of a lot of like the darkness and the pain and the things that have followed me my whole life, the patterns. I, I want to be done with it, and I don't care how what it takes to get there. And it was really like, oh, okay, you say that? Well, we're going to give you that. And... I realized right away there was something very wrong with me. I, I was I kept hearing this thing that was like, "You're sick. You're sick. There's a there's a sickness inside of you. You need to go to a doctor." I was thinking, "What does this mean?" Like I'm so freaked out by that. And and then it was like, "And you're going to go to a doctor, and they're not going to know what to do with you. And you're going to be on your own. And then another doctor's going to come, and they're going to do that." And it was like telling me a story. And I was except I was experiencing it in real time, and I was like completely alone the shaman and some of the the guardians who help were surrounding me and I was screaming I was it, it, I, it's hard to explain what was happening inside of me but I was experiencing something that hadn't yet happened to me and um it was so traumatic that it wiped away every traumatic thing that had ever happened in my life and after that I thought that was my third time I thought I'll never do this again yeah but I did. <laughs> <laughs> so you went into a future trauma is what we're hearing with this one. Yeah, except I didn't know how to interpret it. I thought, is this like a mental darkness? Like it wasn't extremely clear to me, except then a few months ago, I got really sick and it all started to make sense to me. I was like, oh, wow, this was a prophecy. She was telling me you have an illness inside of you. This is what's going to happen. I saw doctors who didn't know what to do with me medications that made me worse um and through it all it was like one of the most intense suffering like periods of my life I just kept going back to that third and fourth ceremony where I was like this is what she said would happen but I didn't think it was a literal interpretation I thought it was like symbolic of something there were several times where I definitely thought I was going to die and that was how I felt in the ayahuasca experience too so like going through it now, you know, on my own, like I live alone, my parents, you know, my family doesn't live anywhere near here. I was thinking, I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm definitely going to die. But if she's right, <laughs> then I'm not going to die. And I have to hold on. To, that's all I can hold on to is that she's right. She's been right about everything else. And that's the only thing that has kept me going. Now I'm starting to come out of it and I'm like better. I'm getting better now, but especially now I, I look back and I'm like, she told me everything that was going to happen. The shaman always says, and that everybody who that I know who's done this a lot has said is the ceremony is 10% of the experience. Integration outside of it is 90%. And I agree completely. So how, how have you been able to integrate you learn during your ceremonies or what, what you can remember from those ceremonies Completely. into your daily life. How has that changed the way that you function? Because I know when you have depression, that makes it impossible to really feel like you're moving through the world at a regular place. Have you noticed a difference in that? Absolutely. Well, the one thing I will say is that after that second ayahuasca trip, I didn't have any more anxiety or depression. It just like was completely gone. I rewired my brain and it was gone. So that was cool. I love that. I, that's why I keep, kept going back. So I was like, is this going to last? But one of the major things that it taught me during that ceremony was I, I was freaking out in a way that like, it was raw, primal me in a way that no one's ever seen me. Like in a way I've never expressed myself animalistic. Like, And I felt very out of control and I needed help. And there were so many people trying to help me. And there was something inside of me that wasn't letting them help me. Then there was a point where I started to let that go. I was like, but what if I just let them help me? Like, what if I just did? And once that thought came to me, it was easier. I was like, I followed the thought. I like, that's visually how I see it is I followed the thought. And I went, okay, yeah, just listen to them. Listen to them. Go with them. Do what they want you to do. 
because everything you've done up until now has not worked. So, uh, so yeah, I, I listened to them. They were like, maybe it would help if you came into the circle and you sang with us. And I was like, that sounds like the craziest idea I've ever heard. I am losing my shit right now. You think I can sing? And, but then I just, I literally remember throwing my hands up in the air and going, sure, I'll do it. Like, I just was like, you better be right. Like, (laughs) um, so I went with them and I sat in the middle of, of the dome and, and I sang with them and sure enough, immediately I was like, okay I was not even just okay I was like it was like bliss nirvana I was just like this is where I'm supposed to be and I need to listen to people I need to let people in and I need to trust that some people know more than I do and that was a huge part of me getting better um Rachel and I talked about compassion for oneself were you able to find more compassion for yourself after this Totally. I would say that was that was something that came on my second my second and my fifth times. The second time I was overwhelmed at the very end with love for myself, which sounds so like it sounds even just weird to say it. Like I loved myself so much and it but it was overwhelming. It was like pouring out of me and I was hugging myself mm-hmm. and I was just thinking, I am such a good mother to myself. Like the way I take care of myself is like diligent. It is no one takes care of themselves like I take care of. And I was just like so like in love with myself for a moment. And it was, I had never felt anything close to that in my whole life. And so it was just like, this is what that feels like to love yourself. This was amazing. But also like forgiveness for the way that I'd treated myself in the past. It was just like, you didn't know. You didn't know. And so you can just forgive yourself because now you know. And it really changed a lot. What were the fifth through ninth experiences like and how are they different? I would say from my fifth to my ninth ceremonies, they were, they've were they been incredibly peaceful. In the beginning, she kind of hazes you. And at some point, she's like, I know you. <laughs> Let's get together, girl. Like It's like I almost feel like she is a friend. Like she knows me she knows what I need and she's not aggressive about it she's like you know you don't need to learn this lesson the hard way we I can just give you the lesson the easy way and you'll retain it before we started interviewing you we talked a little bit about uh the fact that you did ayahuasca with your dad can you talk about what that experience was like yeah for sure so I think that was my sixth ceremony and I um it was my dad and his girlfriend who I'd never met before and she's awesome I love her she's wonderful shout out to Cecilia but it was awesome to have that experience it was like a beautiful kind of bridge to knowing her like you know in a just a different way and but also with my dad yeah there was just so much that came through for him and I a lot of it came afterwards so like in in the ceremony I almost don't even remember what was happening in the ceremony emotions and stuff were coming out but it was overall like a very peaceful feeling does she ever come to you outside of ceremony or do you call on her while I was in kind of the throes of this illness um this is difficult I was having some kind of like a shutdown happen and I was having a lot of anxiety and there were even some points where I was having um, moments of psychosis where I was having breaks with reality and I felt like I am back in the dome right now I am back in the dome except I'm not and I thought why are you doing this to me why are you doing this to me I thought we had this this great relationship now and um, and then it kind of slowly occurred to me wait, she told me this was going to come, you know, as it started unfolding. But initially, when I started feeling, it was like all of the anxiety and depression and darkness had been gone for so long. And then when when the illness hit and it was like things were shutting down and it was like affecting my brain and my heart and my my thyroid and, and just my like nervous system in general, I was feeling like she was there. And you know, I don't know how much of it was her, though, because it, when you're on ayahuasca, it feels very different than when you're not. So in the moment, it was like I felt like she was there, but it didn't feel like classic her. You know, it felt like you're there, but you're not interacting with me. Like, I can see you, but you're not he- like you're not here with me. 
So I do feel like she's always there. She knows, but it's kind of like not not like here right now. You know, she's there when I go back. So do both men and women see grandmother ayahuasca or do men see grandfather ayahuasca? Um, it, is, it is grandmother ayahuasca for everybody. Okay. Um, and I wouldn't say everybody sees or her feels, or anything, yeah, yeah. but I do know like there's San Pedro, there's mm-hmm. Wamacha. I'm, I'm botching that name, but that's the grandfather spirit. There are some other ceremonies where you'll do ayahuasca one night and you'll do San Pedro the next night. And it's like the grandfather, the grandmother balance. Okay. Okay. Is there anything you want to tell us about ayahuasca? I would say um, the main thing about it is it gives you what you need, not what you think you need. When I first went, I thought I knew what I needed. I thought I know everything. I know exactly what I need. Just give me what I want. And very quickly it was, no, you don't know anything. You don't even know what your real problem is. And that was what really struck me again and again and so each time I went I had less expectations and it was better every time I do feel like it scans every cell of your body your being your spirit and it knows what's in your way you don't know what's in your way I didn't know what was in my way and now it seems so clear like I'm just like oh my god how could I have been so stupid to not realize what was really happening Probably one of the hardest things is like letting go of your expectations and just letting her take over. I think the other thing is kind of, you know, the thing that she always takes everybody through is dying. And it's a t- it's like one of the toughest experiences. It's really like important. I, I just like I feel like my belief in what the universe is now is vastly different than anything I ever thought that it was. Uh, There is no doubt in my mind that if I were to die right now, that I would not end, that I would still be just as conscious as I am right now. There's a piece of me that will never go away. It's always going to be here. And that was kind of comforting. Like, it's like, when you think about death, it's it's like, I'm just going to be gone. I'm just going to be here one minute and gone the next. And to know it's like, no, you're still going to be. And it's kind of a tough thing, too, because, I mean, if you've you've ever been suicidal and you've just been like, I just want this all to end. And, you know, with this this illness stuff, there have been times where just my body was shutting down. And I thought, I don't want to die. I definitely don't want to die. But this suffering is worse than death. It's... Uh, and that's the other, that's a major lesson that ayahuasca has taught me is that there are much worse things than death. There are much, much worse things than death. Fear inside of you is worse than death. There's nothing worse than that. It's poison for you to be fearful. It's just the fear that makes everything worse. So those are kind of my main, <laughs> my main <laughs> lessons that I've taken into my life. Great. Those are great messages. (laughs) Most psychedelic studies, John Hopkins and everything, are finding out that people's relationships with death change after psychedelic experiences. What was your relationship with death? Well, I had been raised in um, in a a cult as a child that an apocalyptic cult that made me believe that Armageddon's going to come and it's going to be intense suffering all around you. Everyone you know is going to die around you. You're going to be on fire. You're going to die. Everything's going to be suffering and pain. And when you're dead, you're dead and you never come back. My idea of death was just like horrifying. It was 90% suffering, then you die. You know, it was like, you're going to see the worst shit you've ever seen in your life. And then you die. I had panic attacks as a child. I, I was afraid to go to school every day because I thought Armageddon's going to come and I'm not going to be with my mom and I won't know if she's dead. I won't know if my, my dad's going to be dead. Like I, so my, I just had intense anxiety my, my whole childhood about Armageddon, which also was like death, you know, to me. And, um, and then I, I got out of that cult when I was 16, 17. But, and then I, I was like fully out of anything. I was just like atheist, like nothing out there. And but those that still stick stuck with me, like that feeling of like horrible things are going to happen. Your death is going to be suffering. And 
I that kind of never left me. Okay, but are you fucking shitting me? I totally forgot that you were raised in a cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, Holy I could shit, just drop you are such this, a fascinating woman. I could just drop this <laughs> random stuff like it's nothing. Just call ayahuasca death. Thank you, Chelsea, for sharing that. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was awesome. We also want to thank Dr. Rachel Harris for giving us such an amazing interview. And you can check out her website at listeningtoayahuasca.com. And her book, Listening to Ayahuasca, is available on Amazon. I'm about halfway through it. I'm going to keep going. It's really good. Yeah, she's amazing. I can't wait to read it. You'll love it. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. We actually set up a Patreon page, finally. So we'll put a link to that on our website. And we also have a GoFundMe set up. And we really appreciate everyone who's given so far. And I think we have a shout out, right? We do have a shout out. For those of you who aren't familiar with the difference between the Patreon and the GoFundMe, Patreon is a way to become a patron of the arts. So it's a monthly subscription, anywhere from a dollar to whatever people want to give. And then the GoFundMe is for the podcast network that we're starting up so that is seed money that's a one-time donation it's not reoccurring so it just depends on if you want to support us how you'd like to do that want to give a shout out for a $50 pledge this week to Molly Hayden thank you Molly you're amazing and thanks everybody else that has been donating you've all got thank you cards coming and we love you all and we love everyone else as well. Thank you so much for listening. We're so grateful and humbled that you like the show and give us ideas. And uh, Rachel's setting up a submission form so you can submit your podcast to be part of our network. And we're looking for podcasts that are already produced. Through the submission page, you'll be able to send us a link and let us know what you're up to in your podcast. And we'll be checking them out. Yeah. So uh, have a great week. And thanks for listening to this episode. And uh, we'll see you next week. I'm April. And I'm Rachel. And I'm Chelsea. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time. Bye.